Welcome back to the Hemingway List, Book 11, Chapter 2. Aside from Tolstoy's ball colliding with another ball coming at a greater speed analogy, how do you understand or explain France's continuing on to take Moscow after their defeated Borodino? Uh, and Tolstoy says, A commander-in-chief is never able to contemplate events and plan for them at the beginning. Instead, he always finds himself in the middle of a shifting series of events and in such a way that he is never able to add at any moment to ponder all the meaning of the ongoing event. Do you think this is true in life in general, not just for generals and battle plans, but also for those of us who live our lives in peace? Chapters chapters, as it were. What? Who live our lives in peace chapters. Uh, adding on to that, do the bigger philosophical ideas Tolstoy has laid out in his chapters extend to the drama off the battlefield as well? Heck of a question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Twisted Every Way has an idea, though. Twisted Every Way said this. Yes, I think it is true in general that it's not possible to plan everything out to perfection. There's always a shifting sea of events that can wreck even the best laid plans. Probably even worse on the battlefield where there are multiple people, places and things to look after. Yeah, that reminds me. I, I did, that standout moment of that chapter was where he explained Napoleon, is it Napoleon? Yeah. Um, like the reality of being that person who's in charge at that time and all the complexity of the things they're dealing with on a you know moment to moment basis we give them this kind of grand sweeping overview of history and attribute that to them but you know it's easy to forget uh, all the complexity that would happen hour to hour for these people all the reports of things happening and having to respond to this and that and yeah it would be very very difficult because you know we just think of them as privileged um, and uh, what am I trying to say like you know when you do a day of work and you're responding to emails and this and that and you've got to do this and you've got a meeting here it'd be like that but times a million right and by 11am every day, if I'm working, responding to emails and phone calls and whatnot and, you know, trying to sort things out with all the staff or stakeholders or whatever, I'm, I can't really concentrate by, you know, if I eat slightly too much lunch, oh, that's pretty much the rest of the day ruined because it's very hard to, to uh, you know, give everything your full attention all day. And that would have been their reality, you know, just thing after thing after thing. Um, and they were just humans. You know, they do get hungry. They do get sleepy. They do have attention spans as much as anyone else does. Even if the thing you're trying to pay attention to is like, you know, a historical battle. I'm sure it was a lot more engaging, though, than, you know, my office job. So maybe I'm comparing two very different things. In fact, when I do things that are engaging, that I find not so much fun, but just like, uh, yeah, engaging, I guess is the word, uh, the day goes extremely quick and I just never get tired. So maybe it was more like that.
Anyway, I'm not making much sense. I'm tired at the moment is why. Chapter 3 goes like this. Ooh. Excuse me, yawning so much. Alright, here we go. When Ermolov, having been sent by Kutuzov to inspect the position, told the field marshal that it was impossible to fight there before Moscow and that they must retreat, Kutuzov looked at him in silence. Give me your hand, said he. And turning it over so as to feel the excuse me, the pulse, added, You are not well, my dear fellow. Think what you are saying. Kutuzov could not yet admit the possibility of retreating beyond Moscow without a battle. On the Pokloni Hill, four miles from the Dorogomilov Gate of Moscow, Kutuzov got out of his carriage and sat down on a bench by the roadside. A great crowd of generals gathered around him, and Count Rostopchin, who had come out from Moscow, joined them. This brilliant company separated into several groups who all discussed the advantages and disadvantages of the position, the state of the army, the plans suggested, suggested, the situation of Moscow and military questions generally. Though they had not been summoned for the purpose, and though it was not so called, they all felt that this was really a council of war. The conversations all dealt with public questions. If anyone gave or asked for personal news, it was done in a whisper, and they immediately reverted to general matters. No jokes or laughter or smiles, even, were seen among all these men. They evidently all made an effort to hold themselves at the height the situation demanded. And all these groups, while talking among themselves, tried to keep near the commander-in-chief, whose bench formed the centre of the gathering, and to speak so that he might overhear them. The commander-in-chief listened to what was being said, and sometimes asked them to repeat their remarks, but did not himself take part in the conversations or express any opinion. After hearing what was being said by one or other of these groups, he generally turned away with an air of disappointment, as though they were not speaking of anything he wished to hear. Some discussed the position that had been chosen, criticising not the position itself so much as the mental capacity of those who had chosen it. Others argued that a mistake had been made earlier and that a battle should have been fought two days before. Others again spoke of the Battle of Salamanca, which was described by Crossart, a newly arrived Frenchman in a Spanish uniform. This Frenchman and one of the German princes serving with the Russian army were discussing the siege of Saragossa and considering the possibility of defending Moscow in a similar manner. Count Rostopchin was telling a fourth group that he was prepared to die with the city train bands under the wall of the capital, but that he still could not help regretting, having been left in ignorance of what was happening, and that had he known it sooner, things would have been different. A fifth group, displaying the profundity of their strategic perceptions, discussed the direction the troops would now have to take, a sixth group was talking about absolute nonsense. Kutuzov's expression grew more and more preoccupied and gloomy. From all this talk, he saw only one thing, that to defend Moscow was a physical impossibility in the full meaning of those words. That is to say, so utterly impossible that if any senseless commander were to give orders to fight, confusion would result, but the battle would still not take place. It would not take place because the commanders not merely all recognised the position to be impossible, but in their conversations 
were only discussing what would happen after its inevitable abandonment. How could the commanders lead their troops to a field of battle they considered impossible to hold? The lower grade officers, and even the soldiers who, too, reasoned, also considered the position impossible and therefore could not go to fight, fully convinced as they were of defeat. If Benningson insisted on the position being defended, and others still discussed it, the question was no longer important in itself, but only as a pretext for disputes and intrigue. This Kutuzov knew well. Benningson, who had chosen the position, warmly displayed his Russian patriotism. Kutuzov could not listen to this without wincing. By insisting that Moscow must be defended, his aim was as clear as daylight to Kutuzov. If the defence failed, to throw the blame on Kutuzov, who had brought the army as far as the Sparrow Hills without giving battle. If it succeeded to claim the success as his own, or if battle were not given to clear himself of the crime of abandoning Moscow. But, this intrigue did not now occupy the old man's mind. One terrible question absorbed him, and to that question he heard no reply from anyone. The question for him now was... Have I really allowed Napoleon to reach Moscow? And when did I do so? When was it decided? Can it have been yesterday when I ordered Platov to retreat? Or was it the evening before when I had a nap and told Benningson to issue orders? Or was it earlier still? Oops, I, missed, I lost my spot. <laughs> or was it earlier still? When, when was this terrible affair decided? Moscow must be abandoned, the army must retreat, and the order to do so must be given. To give that terrible order seemed to him equivalent to resigning the commander, the command of the army. And not only did he love power to which he was accustomed, the honours awarded to Prince Prozorovsky, under whom he had served in Turkey, galled him, but he was convinced that he was destined to save Russia, and that that was why, against the Emperor's wish and by the will of the people, he had been chosen Commander-in-Chief. He was convinced that he alone could maintain command of the army in these difficult circumstances, that, and that in all the world he alone could encounter the invincible Napoleon without fear, and he was horrified at the thought of the order he had to issue. But something had to be decided, and these conversations around him which were assuming too free a character, must be stopped. He called the most important generals to him. My head, be it good or bad, must depend on itself, said he, rising from the bench, and he rode to Philly, where his carriages were waiting. Alright, there we go. Another chapter for ya. Kutuzov, knowing what needs to be done, and getting ready to do it epic showdowns of history napoleon versus kutuzov here we go all right guys thanks for listening i'll see you tomorrow